welcome to episode 162 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are your podcasting brothers from another mother. Hey, brother. <laughs> hey, brother. Can I just say how much I love that brand new open? <laughs> you know, the struggle is real, Jesse, because our listeners don't realize it, but we just spent about 25 minutes trying to figure out what to say instead of introducing ourselves as part of the Society of Reform Podcasters, which is no longer a thing. It's been the most preparation, the most meeting time we've spent for a podcast in a very ever. long time. Yeah, I think ever. that's probably I think that's probably true. Maybe like <laughs> cumulatively in the course of our entire podcasting career, we spent less preparation time than just now. And here's what makes that opening so good and on point is that when I look through some of the comments, and I love when people write comments, good or bad, about the podcast, some of them do presume, I think because we're very much alike, our voices are a little bit similar, our mannerisms and speaking are somewhat in line that we're actually blood brothers. So there have yeah. been a couple of reviews that are like, the Arsenal brothers are right on it <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah. So just to reiterate, in case anybody's wondering, we're not actually, well, we're brothers in Christ, of course. We're not actual brothers, but we are brothers in law. So we're in it's terms true. of like, the only thing we're actually missing in this life would be the actual blood brother thing. But yeah. given that you're my brother in law, that would make things like super creepy. So it would be really weird. It would be let's strange. Let's keep that one on the out. Yeah, let's not, let's just drop that line of reasoning. Yes, good call. Jesse, <laughs> why don't we yeah. get into some affirmations and denials? Oh, please, let's do it. What are you affirming today? I feel like I've got a reputation on this podcast, and some of that reputation revolves around music. So I'm going back to music because, once again, so much good music coming out in 2019. And so this week, I am affirming a brand new album from a band called Norma Jean. They are a metalcore band from Douglasville, Georgia, so be prepared for getting your face rocked off. But they have a new album called All Hail, and it is absolutely exceptional. The thing about this band, too, that I think is just like really interesting is they started in 1997. So we're talking about something that's 23 years old, that's metalcore, but also none of the original members are in it. It's been one of those experiences where the people have kind of come and gone. So where it was all those years ago is not anything like what it is today. And yet they produced amazing music. I think they're up to, I don't know, like seven or eight albums. They're actually nominated for a Grammy award in 2006. So wow. this is like legit music, legit Christian music. It's not, no, no like subgenre here. These are really, really amazing artists. And incidentally, do you know where Norma Jean comes from? That name? Do you know that name? I do not. I mean, it sounds familiar, but I couldn't place it. It's the real name of actress Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did yeah, know that. So apparently that's where they grabbed it from just because they thought that it sounded really interesting. But when they, I guess this is like in hindsight, when they actually looked up there, I guess they just like many bands, like you come up with an awesome name, like all the time I end up with random names in my head or somebody says something and I think band name, stole that, called yeah. it. Like that's what I want. I think the same thing happened to them here. And then they looked up the actual meanings of the name. And Norma does mean pattern and Gene can mean God's grace and mercy. So they ended up with a name that's like patterns of grace and mercy, even though they were just like, what was Marilyn Monroe's real name? Norma Jean. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that if people saw you walking on the street, the last thing they would probably think was, I bet that guy listens to some like metalcore. <laughs> it's just so good. It's just, it's just so good. I, I know that it's like, if you're not into it, if it's not your jam, it can sound harsh and something that's difficult to listen to. My challenge would be this. Like, I, I really would love people, even if they're not into it, to pull up some of this music and just really suffer through it if you can. Give it a listen, because what I find really <laughs> interesting about like metalcore music is it's very symphonic in the way that it has multiple movements and there's like a complexity to the composition. There's something very deliberate and methodical about these songs. And part of that comes from the fact that by nature, it's less melodic with the vocal line. So you're not going to hear as much quote unquote singing, although there is a lot of singing in this album. And so because of that, to make it interesting and appealing to the ear, 
there's a lot of intense composition that goes on behind the scenes. So it's not just like banging. Sometimes it gets a bum rap for like banging and yelling and screaming and just like just a wall of sound and noise. It's definitely not that. But I can understand how on the face, if you just turn it on, it might sound like that. But if you give a little listen, you'll, I think you'll hear some interesting things. You'll notice at least, hopefully appreciate that there's a lot of complexity in this style of music. The other thing I was thinking is this band is like that philosophy exercise where it's like the guy has a boat and then he has to like replace parts. <laughs> and over time, he's replaced every part of the boat. And then you have to ask, is it still the same boat or is it a different boat? Yes. So is it still the same band or is it a different band? I don't. I wouldn't call it the same band it, just because of the evolution in their music and the change it's undergone. But it, they also, I should say, when they started out in 1997, and I listened to them then, so that makes me feel kind of old. Their, the name of their band was Ludacris, like L-U-T-I-C-R-I-S-S. <laughs> totally different band. So it's it, but same style of music, but like I, I actually feel like Norma Jean is a much better name. Yeah, definitely. That's an improvement. So how about you? What are you affirming? I am affirming a new book that I just got uh, called Systematic Theology, and it is written by Robert Leatham. So Robert Leatham is one of those reformed theologians that um, kind of isn't someone that most people know about or have heard of. Um, he's a professor at Union Seminary, and he tends to be a little more analytical than some of the people that we typically recommend, but he's really, really phenomenal. Um, he does some really good work on the Trinity and he's got kind of this sort of dry wit that comes through in his writing that uh, usually you don't see in the systematic theology. So it's published by Crossway. Uh, it's kind of a beast. Um, it's probably like if you pick up an ESV study Bible, that's about the size that you're, you're talking about, like a hardcover ESV study Bible. Um, and it's just really phenomenal. He's got... He's got uh, endorsements from Joel Beakey, Sinclair Ferguson, Carl Truman, Cornelius Venema, Alan Strange. Uh, there's a whole uh, other list on the front cover. Um, I'm only through the introduction, which is kind of taking the place of his prolegomena. But so far, it's really good. And I've talked to a few people who've made a little bit further into it that have uh, affirmed with me that it is just an excellent piece of theological writing. So we've recommended a couple of different tomes with respect to systematic theology. Like one of the ones we often talk about is the one by Michael Horton, the Pilgrim's yep. Theology. So put this one on a spectrum. Like where does it sit in comparison to some of the other ones we've talked about? So uh, it's a single volume systematic theology. Uh, it's probably similar to Michael Horton's Christian faith, which is sort of the full version of Pilgrim theology. Pilgrim theology is an abridgment of that. Um, in terms of like technical difficulty, it's probably about the same level. So it'd be something I would expect to, to see used in like a, a first year systematic theology course at seminary where pilgrim theology really is more uh, like an undergraduate uh, intro to seminary or intro to theology kind of a book. Uh, but it's not quite as in-depth as something like a, uh, like a multi-volume, really any multi-volume systematic theology is going to be more in-depth than this. But it's a good addition to, to anyone's library in terms of uh, sort of like your average adult Reformed Christian reader. Um, so far, I haven't encountered anything that would be overly technical or overly difficult to approach, although he is a pretty technical theologian. So there, I may run into that more as I, I get into it, but so far it's been a very, just kind of good, easy read. That's been pretty good and technical, but not overly difficult. I've heard about this. Haven't read it yet, but looking forward to getting a look at it, maybe stealing your copy for a couple minutes and just leafing through it. Because I think what people need to remember is even if you're thinking to yourself, man, I would never like pick up a systematic text and just crush that thing. That's not often the purpose it was written for. It's written to right. be used as well as a resource. So if right. you're any kind of church leader or aspiring church leader, this is the kind of great thing to just kind of get on your shelf. So as you're going through stuff, as you're studying, as you're trying to teach, as you're really just trying to understand the scriptures better to lead and shepherd people, or just to increase the depth of your faith, this is the kind of thing where, you know, somebody asks a question or something comes up or you read something online or you hear us talking about something, grab that bad boy and uh, take a look at the section that's relevant. That has some really heavy hitters, basically yeah. affirming it along with you. I mean, yeah. Sinclair Ferguson, that dude just wrote two books while you were giving that affirmation. I know. I know. So here's a little sample from the uh, table of contents. 
he he arranges it a little differently than most systematic theologies that you're going to read. Most reformed Protestant systematics are going to start with scripture, which is a fine place to start. But if you go back to our systematic theology series, we did uh, kind of in the early days of the show, we started with theology proper. Um, and I made the argument that, you know, you can start in either place, but if you're going to talk about what the word of God is, you really need to start with who God is. Um, and he kind of makes the same argument. So he starts out with the triune God. He moves on to divine attributes. Uh, he goes on to uh, scripture after that. And then he moves on to the works of God, which kind of unfolds everything else. So it's really good. He arranges it in a slightly different way. Um, he talks about, instead of talking about ordo salutis, he covers the same ground, but he talks about the beginning of Christian life and then the progress in Christian life. So he's framing it more in terms of uh, the way that it's applied to us in more concrete terms than sometimes discussions of the Ordo Salutis are. And something that's really, I think, I don't want to say unique because I actually think Calvin does this in the Institutes, but he talks about salvation in the context of ecclesiology. So that's common in Reform or in Catholic, Roman Catholic theology and Anglican theology, although uh, salvation tends to just sort of be a footnote to the church. He really seems to want to like wed those two together in what I think is a really thoroughgoing reformed way um, rather than some of the other kinds of things that that sort of use salvation and ecclesiology as really separate. He treats those things as sort of two sides of the same coin. At least that's what his introduction says he intends to do. I obviously haven't gotten that far. So I'm super excited about it. Systematic Theology by Robert Letham. It's available by Crossway. Um, it's not super cheap, but it, it's it's definitely worth the money to add to your library. That's great. Yeah. What are you denying, Jesse? <laughs> I feel like like your your response wasn't nearly as exciting. Like, yeah, it is. It was just kind of like, yeah, I just told you that. Yeah, I was trying to take a drink of my beer, and then you started talking to me again. Oh, sorry. So my bad. It's all let, good. Let me launch straight into my denial, which this denial is actually a denial wrapped in an affirmation. So if you can think of like this soft kind of affirmation outside and this hard, resistant denial inside, anybody who's listened to us talk for any length of time knows that often what comes out for me is these theological pet peeves that I have. For example, yeah. when administering the communion or the Lord's Supper, saying, this is my body broken for you, pet peeve. I just, that gets under my skin. And it does. We've talked about that before, so I won't go into it now because I, I was just about to launch into it. <laughs> but one of the things, what I'm denying against right now is a verse that is always kind of somewhere lurking in the background of Arminian argumentation, but now I'm just seeing it everywhere in evangelicalism. And it's one of those places where it's just, it's a verse taken out of context. And I'm denying writ large that we all do this and we all just need to get a little bit better. And when we see a verse and our initial response is, that is beautiful. I love the words there that we need to say immediately, let me go read that in the whole context of the passage. So I really yeah. understand what is being said. So the specific manifestation of this that I'm denying against is second Peter three, nine. Okay. You know where I'm going on this, right? I don't. I mean, so, I'm sure that I could figure it out, but why don't you tell me? So here's the thing. So Peter is writing to the church in his book and in second Peter three, nine is the verse that says it is not God's will that any should be lost or that all uh, should be yes. saved. And so this is one of those things where it's, it's just out of context because we have in this passage at the beginning at the very top of the chapter, but then in verse eight itself as well, Peter's talking to this beloved, this group. So the pronoun here is this group of people, which is the church, the ones whom he's specifically addressing. And of course he's writing a letter. So he hits somebody in mind here. And so that's the pronoun. That is the group. That is the noun. And so when we get to verse nine, for some reason, people want to flip that and say, well, the any he's talking about here is not just this little group of people or the beloved or those elect or saved, but now we need to broaden out to the entire world. So like the onus right. is always on the person taking this out of context to prove to me that that's not what happens. So here's the affirmation though, that's wrapped around this denial. And that is, I came across the other day, a mug online that is to me super hilarious. Now, to, for you to actually understand the joke, there is, I have to reference something that I also deny and that I definitely do not condone. But in terms of like this kind of cultural zeitgeist of a particular logo, there was an album released by an American hip hop group in the late 80s called Straight Outta Compton. 
Yeah. And the logo for this was kind of like this alternating black text and white background. Then the auto was white text, black background. So there's a mug that I found online that says, Second Peter three nine straight out of context, and yeah. for some reason I just I just love the mug, and I want to get this and bring this to like every church gathering that I have everywhere I go, so people will ask, "What is that about?" And then I can be like, "Listen, are you familiar with predestination? <laughs> are you familiar with God protecting and preserving His elect?" So I just love I just love the idea of this mug. So. It's something that if you look it up, I'm sure you can find online. So it's like a denial and affirmation. Affirming the mugs, I think it's super clever. I love that reference. And it uses like the same logo as the Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. I just think Straight Outta Context is a hilarious application for Second Peter 3.9 on your coffee mug. Yeah. And just in case there's anyone listening that wants to understand exactly how to interpret this, uh, contrary to the way the Arminians tend to distort it, um, there's a couple things. So... Verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the key to understanding this is that there's an implied pronoun or, or maybe not an implied pronoun, but the, the, the subject of the word any is the same as the subject as the word you. Exactly. So you should read it as not uh, is patient toward you. Uh, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. So, so the point is, is that there's a single subject throughout the the verse where the Arminian interpretation, as you rightly pointed out, you have to switch to the subject or switch using view with this. So, it, Peter would be saying, uh, "God is patient toward you," and then somehow the purpose of him being patient toward you is that everyone else might be saved, which I guess you could make that argument that you could have a theological point there if that's what the text said, but there's no good reason to assume there's a different subject in view. Um, The other thing is just in general, the whole book is written to the elect exiles. So it's already the elect are already in view throughout the whole letter. Um, So you really do have to kind of understand. And, and we've said this like a million times on this show Sometimes all you have to do is just read a little bit more of the chapter or the book in order to get the context. And it makes it all really clear. Because if you read just not wishing that any is uh, any should perish, but that all should reach repentance and you read that like, yeah, well, all should reach repentance. He's talking about all meaning all without exception, where what he's really saying isn't that at all. He's saying it's the people he's speaking to, the ones he's patient toward, the purpose of his patience, and the reason he hasn't returned yet is because he doesn't want any of his elect to perish prior to coming to repentance, which is a a very strong affirmation of God's predestination and election, so much so that the very timing of his return is delayed because of the fact that he's chosen some for salvation that have not yet come to salvation in, in terms of historic in history or temporal time. So it really is saying exactly the opposite of what the Arminians wanted to say. And you can see how, I know that sounds complicated, but really all you've done in many ways is just gone in and read it thoroughly all the way through that passage and kept in mind what was the whole purpose and the audience that it was intended for? That's all it takes sometimes. It doesn't take like an advanced degree in, in linguistics to be able to really appreciate and to understand why a verse is being used and what it's saying. Sometimes it just takes a little bit more work and a little bit more thoughtfulness. And I think right. for Christians that want to be fair-minded or reasonable people that should be driven to their Bibles, anytime we hear a verse that's being used regularly to support some kind of doctrine or argument, that should be the kind of verse in particular that's a lightning rod for us that says, let me go back into the scriptures. I want to read for myself and see what this means in light of the passage in which it appears. And so I think that's just what's tremendously important. And in this case, I think all it takes is just a little bit of understanding, like, okay, what's really going on here? What is Peter trying to say? And the way you explained it, which is really beautiful, and I think actually very articulate, you can see that there's a beautiful continuity and consistency with the logic and that what's being said there. When you approach this from the other way around, there's still this even cognitively like a dissonance because at one point we're saying, even if we can get past the language and say they're not flipping the pronouns there, at one point we're saying, well, wait, so God 
doesn't want anybody. His will is for not one to perish, but clearly people do perish in their sins. Right. So then we have to do more linguistics, try to figure out, well, what is Peter trying to say here so that I can try to bring together this idea that somehow God is either, you know, he's, he doesn't, he has a secret will. He doesn't want this to happen, but he can't help it. This is where we get into trouble. Like all because we didn't just read it and let the scripture plainly speak as God has intended. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is there's actually a textual variant. Um, if you read, if you read Greek, the word for you, uh, second person, plural, uh, and the word for us, second, uh, first person plural, is just a difference of a letter. And there's actually some textual variants that have the Lord is patient toward us. Um, so either way, it's either Peter is talking to a group of people whom he considers to be elect that the Lord is patient toward, or Peter is actually including himself in that group and saying right. the Lord is patient toward us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. But either either way you slice it, uh, there's no justified reason to switch that um, switch that that subject. And then on top of what you just said, or with what you just said, that there are really really bad theological implications about God not actually being sovereign and omnipotent if you read this the way the Armenians do. And and if there's anything in scripture that is sure is that God is sovereign and omnipotent. And so to have a, have this verse here, you always want to interpret the unclear verses, which I don't think this is particularly unclear, but even if it was, you don't want to interpret the unclear verses. You don't want to use them to interpret the clear verses. Right. So the fact that God is omnipotent is a clear teaching throughout the whole corpus of scripture that should inform us in how we interpret this here. Straight out of context. <laughs> yeah. And this wasn't, this isn't even the subject of tonight's conversation. That was I just know. free of charge. That's just denial right there. Yeah. Unless you're one of our Patreon supporters, then I suppose you paid a nominal fee for it, but. And we thank you very much. And we do thank you for your donation. I almost said for your service. So go ahead and hit me with your denial. <laughs> My denial. All right. This is. I might be calling down a little bit of fire on us from some online forces. I am denying no quarter November. Have you heard of this? No. So anyone who's listened to the show knows that I'm not a fan of Doug Wilson. Um, I can safely say now as of recently that Doug Wilson is not a fan of me, uh, which is fine. But no quarter November is this thing that Doug Wilson does in November uh, where basically he's even more of a caustic figure uh, who says inappropriate things or even says appropriate things in, in, in inappropriate ways than okay. ordinary. So he calls it piratical theology. So basically he conceives <laughs> of November as a month where there's no no more restraints that he's not going to hold back and that he's going to do theology like a pirate, which I don't really know exactly what he means by that. What? But uh, basically... It, <laughs> Apparently what we get from Doug Wilson for most of the year is some sort of form of restraint, which is terrifying. And no quarter November is when he no longer exercises the same restraint that he usually does. So I'm denying it primarily because uh, one of the qualifications of elder is that they're not pugnacious or they're not right. quarrelsome. They're not right. seeking a fight. And it seems like Doug Wilson revels in this month of November to, to even more than ordinary, which he's not particularly restrained ordinarily, but even more than ordinarily, he revels in picking fights and saying overly controversial things. Uh, one of his no quarter November quotes was something like, where in the world did we get this idea that sexism was opposed to the Bible? Something along those lines. And, and wow. his basic point, his basic point is that uh, the Bible is a, is a complementarian document. And so we should be quote unquote sexist in that there should be distinctions and um, divisions. And in some ways there should be, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't matter. Th there should be this division and distinction between the genders, between the sexes. And, and he's using the word sexist to describe this. But here's here's what drives me nuts is the statement that he's making, or at least on a surface level, what he's trying to say is actually true, that there are distinctions and that the distinctions that the Bible teaches our culture considers sexist. Uh, 
Right. The the problem is that he's just straight up. This is like what we talked about before when he told that guy to like stop listening to his pastor. He says these things, which may have a kernel of truth in them, but he says them in ways that are just reckless and pastorally irresponsible. And, and so he's telling a bunch of guys, uh, mostly guys who are already geared up for a fight, that they should act like pirates, that they should be even more aggressive and hostile than usual and that they should uh, embrace and engage in sexism. That is just just vile and irresponsible. So I'm denying Doug Wilson, but I'm denying no quarter November because it's it's an excuse for Doug Wilson and those who really follow after him to act even more ungodly than they usually do. And it just right. drives me nuts to see it online. Yeah, so it's crazy to think that the rest of the year we're getting like DW light. Yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that. And it's funny. Here's a dude that is taking a decent point and obfuscating it by using purposely inflammatory language. Right. Yeah, I know. It's it's <laughs> terrible. So, yeah. So you want to say like, well, if you're really trying to be even just a good communicator in any realm of life or subject matter, like that's a horrible way to do it. That's just bad yeah. on any terms. So I'm I'm with you. I want to deny you said it was no quarter November. That's no quarter it. November. I want to deny that just because the name is stupid, but, <laughs> but it's I've a never good, loved you more than I do right now. It's a pretty good band name. So I would take that as a band name. It's true. It's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had a lot of, uh, inappropriate restatements of no quarter November that I probably should not have said that I will save for some time off the air. <laughs> There's been a lot of, uh, <laughs> mockery of the concept that I've engaged in that. Yeah. I, I think it's a concept worth mocking. I mean, if, yeah, if Elijah can, if Elijah can be like, maybe your God's sitting on the toilet, maybe he <laughs> fell asleep. Maybe he's relieving himself. Then a little bit of uh light jabbing <laughs> at someone who thinks it's okay to be a pirate in the month of November. I don't even know what piratical theology is. I will say this though. He's got pretty cool videos the, the intro to this month was like him walking around in a field dumping out. I'm sure it was water. I'm sure they added the flames afterwards, but he was like walking around in a field, smoking a cigar, dumping out like a bucket of gasoline on the ground. And then at the end of it, he sat down in this, like he sat down in this lazy boy and like threw his cigar on the ground and it like burst into flames. And it like made this pattern that was like a Jolly Roger on the, on the field. And they, they did like an overhead zoom and it was so clearly computer animated um, and the flames were very clearly computer animated. So it was a cool concept, but yeah, it sucks because he's got cool videos and I, you know, I'm, people will be surprised at me saying this. He does have very insightful things to say sometimes. I just don't think that the, uh, the fact that he once in a while or even frequently says insightful things justifies overlooking all the ungodly behavior that he demonstrates other exactly. times. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it, it's, it would be great if we could get some of those insights from him without the rest of it, but I'm not willing to like overlook the bad behavior because once in a while he says something in a particularly pithy or insightful way. I'll tell you why that video was so cool. It's because he wants to be in a band called no Quarter called November. no Quarter November. And yeah. that would have been their music video. It's true. It would have been. It is a cool video. I would say go look at it, but I don't really want to drive any more traffic to his site. But it was a cool video. It's a cool concept. I'm, I'm telling you, that is a metalcore video right there. That's a post-hardcore band video right there. That yeah. is right on the theme. Also, just so you know where my mind was at when you said, if you've ever heard of No Quarter November. Yeah, I'm lumping this up together with like No Shave November, stuff like right. that. So I'm thinking... It's a movement of people to stop using quarters for a month because they're protesting <laughs> the use of change. That's what I really thought yeah. you were about to say is like, because there's a group, there's a large group of people and I might be among them in some degree that like one, just get rid of pennies because they're annoying and actually cost more to produce than they're worth. And a lot of people just recycle them anyway. So I thought like, oh, is this some, we're just moving up to quarters now. Like get these quarters out of here. I don't want to be bothered with change anymore. It's so antiquated, but this yeah. is actually worse. It's way worse. I do think I read about a study one time where they they did a modeling of what would happen if they got rid of pennies and it like it like broke the entire economy. Oh, it wasn't like that post mill? No, it wasn't like that post mill. <laughs> it was like that pre mill. <laughs> and then well, credit cards became the mark of the beast and Oh, uh, I I do hear that all the time. Yeah, it's true. I do hear that all the time in my industry. Well, speaking of really, really bad preaching, how about we juxtapose that <laughs> with some really, really good preaching and some talk about it? So 
We're still making our way through Dr. Joel Beakey's book called Reform Preaching. And I was realizing just the other day, Tony, that we are fast approaching the one-year anniversary of the book club with Joel Beakey's book. It's true. It's true. We did start this about a year ago. It's coming uh, I up. remember because I I tried to buy this book for my pastor for Pastoral Appreciation Day. They had a special where it was like, buy one, get one free. So I bought one for myself and I bought one for dad. And then I wrapped it all nice and I gave it to him. He opened He's like, oh, I already have this. And he just handed it back to me. <laughs> and I was like, what am I going to do with this second book? And then I was like, let's do a book club. So he's basically like, I don't feel appreciated. Take this back. Yeah, exactly. He like smacked me in the face with it. He <laughs> wow, was like, that took an ugly turn. Yeah, that's at, like the 100% opposite of anything that dad would do. <laughs> he's a very gracious man. So we're into yes. chapter 11. And this chapter is entitled The Westminster Directory and Preaching. And I think this is like the perfect chapter for you and I to talk about because in some ways it's a culmination of a lot of things we've talked about intermittently across, what, 161 conversations relating to the Westminster Confessions and the Catechism. Yeah. So I loved reading this and getting like a little bit of a flavor for how this fits in with preaching, but also how historically it has shaped the church and the message yeah. and the doctrine that the church promulgates. Yeah. And you know, I, I was thinking the other day, I don't know if this was done on purpose. I have to think it probably was, but this book forms this really nice chiasm. So you have like the yeah, first five or six chapters that are about kind of like the theology of preaching, what ex experiential preaching is. And then you have this whole beautiful middle section that's sort of historical figures and how they embody or exemplify historical uh, experiential preaching. And then when you get to the end, you, you get back to kind of an application portion where he starts to talk again about like, all right, now that we've talked about all this stuff, we've got all these examples, what do we do? And this chapter here really fits directly in the middle of that chiasm, not just, you know, in terms of concept, but like, it's actually like in the middle of the book. And I, I think, and maybe this wasn't on purpose, but I think it probably was, this is the most important chapter in the book, I think. Because all of the preaching that was uh, explained before this is driving forward and sort of develops into Westminster uh, style preaching as exemplified in the Westminster Directory of Preaching. And then all of the preaching afterwards, even though maybe not directly, all of the preaching afterwards really comes about as, as a result of this Directory of Preaching and the influence that it had, especially in the, in the English speaking world. Right. And we tend to underweight this in our modern era, in modern evangelicalism, because if you didn't come from a tradition, you weren't raised in one or belong to one now, that is, let's say, like, confessional by definition or by expression, then oftentimes we just think this doesn't apply to us. It's sort of part of just some other theological stream or train of thought. But the reality right. is so much of all of modern evangelicalism is basically drawn from the pages that are represented in this chapter here. And a lot of people have heard us talk about how much we value the confessions and the catechisms. And I do ex experience from time to time when I'm having discussion with somebody, with a, a brother or sister, and I bring up one of these documents, sometimes the pushback is, well, I want to go to the Bible. Like, don't give me, you know, a confession or a code. Give me just the scriptures. And so what I think Beaky does really well that helps to kind of for us to understand the color and the context of what was developed here is that, this assembly, the Westminster Assembly, this is the group of divines that are putting together all these documents that we were speaking of. You know, the assembly ended up meeting for six years, and their express intent in the beginning wasn't to go as deep or as far as they intended. But what happened is, he writes that at the last session in February 1649, the assembly had held more than a thousand sessions. Yeah. And in that time, they produced an entirely new confession of faith as well as the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, the former Presbyterian church government, and the director for the public, directory for the public worship of God. And they'd also given approval to this new metrical version of the Psalms. So when people say to me, like, or even I weigh myself against this standard, when I think, hey, maybe I have a novel idea or interpretation here that's different, I think, hold up a second, is there any chance that what I'm thinking is better than the thousand sessions where this group of diverse gentlemen sat down and weighed out and debated and meticulously articulated the main doctrines of the scriptures. I mean, it, there's almost, aside from the scripture itself, and again, which these documents are meant to summarize 
and help to codify, in a sense, what is already represented in the scripture and then draw us back to it by way of reference. Is there anything better than this? Has, has man produced anything that's a better summary? And at least if you ask me, have I produced a better summary? The answer is definitely and equivocally no. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the Westminster Assembly, apart from um, these sessions, these thousand sessions or thousand plus sessions they're having, they're also, for the most part, they're all pastors or and professors. So right. they're also actively engaged in teaching and ministry. And on top of that, the Westminster Assembly itself was also a body that was examining uh, ministerial candidates and ordaining them to office. So so all of this theology that they're developing in terms of the belief system, but then also this sort of practical application of how do we ordain ministers? What's the mechanics of preaching? What's the training for preaching? That's all being fleshed out and applied by the Westerners Assembly in time. And, and I wanted to read, there's this section here on the preparation for preaching. And yeah. when I first read the heading, I thought it was mostly going to be talking about like what the minister does as they're preparing each week, like to, like preparing the sermon. But really, it's more about uh, the training and the preparation for ministry itself, which um, even some of our more rigorous denominations, you know, I think of like the OPC or the RPCNA, even their their ministerial training is like nothing compared to this. So I just want to read this. This is on the bottom of page 194. He says, in the form of Presbyterian Church government, publishing the same year as the directory, we read that a candidate for ordination must be required by the presbytery to read from the Greek and Hebrew scriptures, translate a portion into Latin, and perhaps show his proficiency in logic and philosophy. He must demonstrate a familiarity with the major writers in theology, be able to explain orthodox doctrine and refute contemporary errors, exegete the text of scripture, answer cases of conscience, uh, which is questions about assurance and ethics, know the chronology of a Bible history and the history of Christianity. In addition to preaching before the people, he must give a discourse in Latin to the presbytery on some doctrine assigned to him. So, boom. I, I, you did you study a language in high school, Spanish or something like that? Yeah, I did. Like translating from from a foreign language into English is already difficult. Yes. And sometimes when you're studying a language, because it's helpful for your training, you try to translate English into a foreign language. But translating one language into another foreign language requires so much of an in-depth mastery of both of those languages that it's kind of hard to express. Like I couldn't translate a Greek text into a Hebrew text, even if I wanted to. And I would never be required to in modern, modern language, language training for seminary or whatever. But the requirements that these men had placed upon them um, were far and above beyond even what the, the most advanced PhD like candidates do in our current context. So we should look at this and recognize not only were these men who spent thousands of hours in session developing this, this confession of faith and the associated documents, but these are men who had a grip on biblical languages, biblical exegesis, and just in general, the discipline of education, of being educated. They had so much more of a vast grip on that than really anyone does nowadays that to sort of look at them and be like, yeah, but I'm going to just go ahead and fix this part. Like, it's really quite arrogant. That's not to say, like, we shouldn't be open to revising the confessions. Uh, we should. And and the, the Reformed churches have done that, and that's okay. But to look at that and sort of casually dismiss the, the fruit of that kind of intellectual labor is really kind of arrogant and I think pretty foolish. And this is actually so far the opposite of where we're at today, what right. he's written there by way of standards. Because if you think about it this way, and I, what's funny, because I have that exact whole section highlighted in my book because I was blown away by that. And who wouldn't yeah. be just reading that and seeing those standards? And what really struck me right away is we live in a day and age where I'm not going to say like anybody could be a pastor. And by pastor, I mean some kind of proclamation or proclaiming on the Lord's Day from the pulpit, because there's certainly many denominations, many churches, which employ some kind of modern equivalent of a rigorous undertaking in vetting right. pastoral candidates. But 
generally the joke, even in our modern culture is that you can just go online and become ordained really quick in five minutes. Right. Or yeah. if you tend to speak really well, you have a really good turn of voice or turn of phrase. You can, you should be our pastor because you're eloquent and well-spoken. And that's all beside the point. So all these major, major requirements that these men had to undergo was because there was a practical outworking that was intended. And that was a real focus on worship and even like worship itself preceded all the writing of the confessions and the catechisms and these standards themselves. The reason why the standards were in place were essentially to create these guideposts, these fencing around the idea that when you come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day and we just, we're going to worship him, this needs to be done in a precise and a right way. And so we need to have the proper leaders in place who can administer that so that we all do not fall under condemnation. There was a real fear that struck these men. And so they said, what we need to do is make sure that we have the right leaders in place. And I was really moved by the way in which Dr. Beakey writes about this. And again, how he sees this zeal for biblical and spiritual worship manifested both in those standards and then in these really practical ways when it comes to the Lord's Day. So for instance, he's talking about in the scope of, like you're saying, preparation for preaching. One of the things I found really interesting is... He was saying that the divines essentially emphasized a very long prayer before the sermon. You know, that is, there's this quote in the book about, or from the director, it says, thus our worship is always a response to God's word. We must bring to the holy God only those things that he has commanded, or we presume and trespass against his holiness. And so it's interesting. He talks about this idea of the pastor himself, the minister, the preacher, having this prayer in which confession, his own confession in front of the people, is a major part of the process. This idea that like preaching does not take place until the minister has publicly confessed sins against God in the sufficiency of Christ as sacrifice and intercessor. And yeah. he asks God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so what this immediately brought to my mind was a contrast. And I'm going to pick up some low-hanging fruit, but I think this example serves to make my point. Have you ever heard the opening to every and any Joel Olstein sermon? Are you familiar yeah, with this? That little chant they do. Yeah. So let me read the chant. So this is compare this now to what what uh, Beaky has just said about what would be the proper approach to before a sermon takes place. What should really take place in the service? Contrast that with what this is. What Joel Olstein has he says and has his congregation say before every sermon. Quote: This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I'll be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name, end quote. Yeah. Can you see like the, the amazing difference in that? Like here, it's all about me. Like, God, I'm here just to leverage your power. Like I, yeah. I'll slap Jesus' name on at the end of this so that it has some kind of sense of authenticity and legitimacy and authority. But it's all about I, what I am, what I have, what I can do. And so Beaky goes against that. I mean, this is just an exact reversal of the right. stuff he's talking about in Reformed preaching. Yeah. And you know what it made me think of when I was reading that is the Day of Atonement. Because, you know, it, it's not as though preaching is somehow redemptive in and of itself, right? It's redemptive because it's the application of God's word by God's spirit to us right. through the pastor. But in the Day of Atonement, right, the, the priest doesn't just, the high priest doesn't just go wandering into the holy of holies with a sacrifice. There's this elaborate sacrifice and confession of his own personal sin that he has to, he has to do before he can enter into the holy of holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And I don't, I would be surprised if there weren't comparisons to that in the original documents and the writings of the, the Westminster assembly and the divines. I don't, I don't know that for a fact because I haven't read them, you know, extensively, but I would be surprised if it wasn't there, but that, that kind of perspective that the pastor has to go before he can even approach the congregation and address the congregation as as the prophet of God, he has to go and he has to, in a sense, make atonement for his own sin through confession of faith. He's not making atonement for himself, but his right. sins have to be taken away through the confession of sins prior to preaching, because that's how serious of, a, of an act and how, how deadly serious it is to come into God's presence, even in the exactly. new covenant. It's still deadly serious to come into the presence of God. And how much more deadly serious is it to speak on God's behalf to God's people? So he has to have this confession of sin in a sense to, to purify himself 
before he's able to address the congregation from the word of God. And I think we've, we've, um, you know, we've, we've reduced preaching to sort of like a lecture that's delivered. And right. I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to slam on any particular church, but I'm going to use an example that, that I ran into recently. So, um, when I was in Minnesota, uh, this, a, a couple weeks ago, I went to my home church, my, my church in Minnesota. And, and I love that church. And I recognize that, um, when I was there on that Sunday, it was one, one slice of the teaching ministry of that church, right? They do, they have 52 sermons a year and I was there for one of them. So right there, I'm still experiencing just a tiny part of the preaching. But then on top of that, they have Bible studies and they have small groups and they have other teaching opportunities. So with all of that said, the sermon series that they're in is a sermon series about uh, immigration and refugees. And it's very much a socially oriented um, sermon series. Right. And I listened to some of the sermons earlier in the series, and I've listened to a couple since then. And maybe it was just this one week, but it was 27 minutes into the sermon before any scripture was read. 27 wow. minutes into the sermon. That's and wild. And this, the scriptures that were used during the sermon were not particularly uh, well exegeted. They were not particularly well applied. And and I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, this, this sermon is really more a lecture about the current state of immigration in America. And, you know, he was making fine points. He, he was uh, making the point that in scripture... The Israelites are commanded to be kind to the sojourners in their country because they were sojourners. He was making good, fine biblical points. But the fact of the matter is that the sermon was not a sermon delivering God's word from God's word. It was a sermon where uh, some sort of topic was being addressed and then God's word was used as like a prop to lend uh, further right. authority to the message that was already being given. The same exact lecture and or teaching could have been given without any scripture at all. And in point of fact, you could have delivered that sermon and used passages from Harry Potter to prove your point in very much the same way that passages from the scripture were right. You could, you could say, yeah, like Harry's kind of this stranger in this strange world. And so he has this soft spot, even though he's a pure, a pure blood from a wizarding family, he has this soft spot for the, the muggle-borns who are in this world. And, and he's pushing up against the, the forces of darkness that want to, you know, oppress these muggle-borns. And, and so we, like Harry, we should be uh, aware of the fact that we too, even though we are now pure-born Christians, we too should be kind to those who are not like you could make all of those points in compelling ways by exegeting Harry Potter. And so this, this passage here that I'm going to read from reform preaching, I think really demonstrates exactly what the difference is between that kind. And I, I re, I'm reticent to even call it preaching because it's not like it's, it's a lecture that uses the scripture as supporting evidence. And here's right. the, the passage is from the bottom of page 195. He says, every sermon must be the preaching of a text of scripture. The preacher may select his scripture text topically to speak to some doctrine or special occasion or by the preaching through a chapter of a book of the Bible. The directory does not mandate either method, but gives the preacher the freedom to do as he shall see fit. But it's noteworthy that the preaching for some special occasion still calls for an exposition of scripture. So even if you want to do a sermon, you know, let's say I wanted to preach a sermon and I wanted to teach the congregation about the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead of just like, explaining the doctrine and then like peppering in like proof texts on it when I need to do, at least according to the Westminster directory is I need to actually pick a text that the doctrine of the Trinity is, is taught through, right. you know, like jo John one, one through five would probably be my go-to or Genesis one, one through 27, right? You can, you can teach the doctrine of the Trinity by exegeting those texts and then bring in other texts to, to flesh that out. Right. But to, to start your sermon out from a perspective of, I'm going to teach you about this thing and I'm going to then pepper in the scriptures kind of like footnotes to my lecture to give some extra authority to it. That's not preaching. And here's, here's the main problem. Okay. I ran into someone at, at my church in Minnesota after the sermon. And they said, what do you think of the sermon? And every time I go, they always ask me the same question. And it's almost always the same answer. I said, you know, I just sat through a 45 minute service and there was maybe 30 minutes of preaching, 35 minutes of preaching. 
I said, I still don't know what the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved is. I still don't know. From that sermon, I have no idea. Right. I know I know about two people that were refugees that couldn't find asylum in America who washed up on the shore because they drowned trying to escape their country. Um, I know about the fact that that pastor's uh, great-grandparents came from Sweden. I know all these facts, but I don't know what needs to happen to be saved. I don't even really know what the Bible calls me to do in response to the stranger in my land, apart from some out of context examples from narrative documents that uh, don't really have a didactic purpose in the way that they were presented. And the, the reason you have to preach a text of scripture is because the scripture has its own divine logic built into it. And if you faithfully exposit that, then you're utilizing that divine logic to communicate what God intends through that text. Not what you intend, not what you want to teach, what the Bible teaches and, and how that applies to God's people. This is the difference between proclamation and presentation. And right. there's so much that happens nowadays that's presentation that masquerades even inadvertently in the, I would say in the mind of the preacher as preaching or proclamation, because it sounds like it's in line with the scriptures. But the bottom line is that everything you just said there about certainly like the crisis facing our country with respect to immigration is a real thing. Does God want us to be loving? Of course he does. But to disassociate that uh, from God by basically just trying to bring in some evidence says, no, the Bible would agree with this is to make everything man focused and not God focused. And that's really what Beaky, I think is emphasizing here that all of what he's writing about preaching is always Godward. It's always God centric. And so it's really easy to think that you're centering everything on God when really you have a hobby horse, you have an excellent idea and doing something that is good that the Bible would support does not mean that you are preaching. It just right. doesn't. And so right. I think there's a lot of that that happens. I mean, incidentally, we should say that like one of the great things about this chapter is it's really intensely practical, but was the section you're reading from, he basically, Beaky lists like, I think it's like seven, six or seven points here yeah. from the directory about basically how to preach and also what right. your preacher's sermon, what a good sermon should look like. And so he's going through like intensely, just almost, it seems like monotonous things. Like he talks about, here's what an introduction in your preaching should be like. Right. And here's what instruction in preaching looks like. Here's what application in preaching is like. This is awesome because there's just a lot of meat to chew on here. And it's not just all heady, like theoretical, philosophical stuff. It's like, here's how you should approach. Here's how you should think about when you come into the Lord's house on the yeah. Lord's day preaching. One of the things that I really appreciated about that is, and this gets, this is a tangent that is connected to what you presented about the rigorous requirements. And here's what just blew me away. So on the one hand, you have the assembly saying, listen, these dudes got to know their stuff. They've got to be thoroughly steeped in theology. They got to be expressive in their theology. You got to know the actual original languages. So they can go to the source documents. So they got to translate in between the documents. So we're talking about not just ordinary translation, like you said, but like translation to a very large technical degree an explanation yeah. that is detailed and would be rigorous and complicated in your own native tongue but even more so in two that are foreign to you. So we got all that going on. And then here's what they also say about the introduction. I love this. It says the introduction in your sermon should be short and clear and focused on the scripture text and yeah. making many divisions of the text or using obscure terms only makes it hard for the congregation to understand and remember all the divisions and terms. So I love that they're saying, listen, you should be intelligent. You should be well-crafted, called to this, well-stayed in this, but don't be a jerk about it. You shouldn't be this kind of know-it-all guy that goes in and tries to use this knowledge to lever over people that you're somehow really important and smart. If anything, you should try to, if you are not making this understandable, then you've actually failed. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've all heard sermons where uh, you can tell that the, the preacher is just really enamored with their own mastery of Greek. <laughs> right, right. Where, and, and what's really funny as someone, and I'm not an expert in Greek by any stretch of the imagination, but as someone who has a moderate knowledge of biblical Greek, it's really funny because when you hear those people, it's actually really clear that they don't have nearly as, mas as much of a mastery of Greek as they think they do. Um, because they, they usually pull out, you know, like they make big, a big deal about the fact that like Jesus uses two different words for love in the end of John 
or or like they they make those kinds of points. And the the reality of it is like Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. So it wasn't Jesus that was using two different words for that. John may or may not be making a point uh, by using two different words for love. But the word, those two words for love are used interchangeably in other parts of the scripture. So you can usually tell when that happens. But I do think it, it's important because it might seem strange to talk about um, in the Westminster Directory. It may seem strange to talk about whether or not it's appropriate. You know, he gets to this towards the end of the chapter, whether or not it's appropriate to use technical terms or to use uh, foreign language terms. And then right. also whether or not it's appropriate to cite or to quote um, non-biblical sources. And, and the reason that it is coming up is because you have to remember what they're up against, right? They've got, Anglicanism, which at this point in history is more or less just Catholicism. Um, they have Anglicanism that they're pushing up against. They have Roman Catholicism, properly speaking, that they're pushing up against. And in both of those cases, the orations were very high language. It would be equivalent to like a pastor in our day and age getting up and insisting on using King James English for the entire duration of their sermon. Like it wouldn't right. make sense. It wouldn't land with the people. It'd be hard to understand. And they gave themselves this air of authority by using this kind of language. And then on top of that, you have the the over-dependence on church fathers and uh, ecclesiastical sources. But at the same time, the Westminster Directory is saying, well, you should be cautious with that. But at the end of the day, the individual pastor at the congregational level is responsible for knowing their congregation and preaching in a way that is going to feed their congregation. And and the way that this um, plays out for me in my mind is one of the things that's really common among like Bible students or seminary students is a struggle to find a church where they really feel like they are uh, being preached to at sort of a, an appropriate level. Because right. a lot of times, and it depends on where you go, but a lot of times you come out of seminary and you actually end up in a church, at least in nowadays, you end up in a church where you're actually more well-educated in the subject than the pastor is. Um, and so it can be difficult because you're sitting there going, well, I, you know, I wish he would dig into this a little bit more. So if you had, for example, a, a congregation that was in uh, downtown Boston by all of the academic institutions, you might you might be justified in using a little bit more technical language because they're capable of understanding it. It's going to actually appeal to them in a way that really sort of common language may not. But at the same time, if you're in a country church where every, you know, the, most people only have a high school or first sort of like primary college education, you really need to avoid that stuff because it's going to actually just be confusing. So it, it, I like that they, they want to emphasize that although these are some things that are important, theologically there's reasons for it the actual application of these principles that the Westminster directory gives that's up to the local pastor in order to determine according to his prudence what's best for his congregation right and there, there's a whole section to that point on adaptation and preaching right. which I really hadn't considered previously yeah but it's this wonderful advice to do exactly what you just said it, they talk about the preacher should exercise flexibility and, and that would be with respect to like how they communicate, what they're saying, the language they use. But also, this blew me away, n- not to develop every doctrine which lies in the text. In fact, yeah. I think he goes, makes this kind of humorous mention of the fact that, you know, we talked about William Perkins before. He had a very like consistent and elaborate rubric for like how to preach. And Beaky notes that if you try to develop every doctrine in every text and every sermon, according to Perkins, if you went letter by letter of his approach, you would have to, it would result in 126 applications, <laughs> which, which is like very Puritan. I, I totally get yeah. that. But I love this idea where he says, listen, the pastor needs to be selective in his applications. He doesn't need to pull out everything in every single text every time he preaches on that text. And that his knowledge is actually gained and enforced by his residence and conversing with his flock. So he knows what they need to hear and what he needs to draw out. So it's almost in some ways like a liberty. I mean, you've preached before, anybody who's taught before and felt the weight of, here's a passage of scripture and you think, oh my word, when you start to get into it, you start to read, you start to pray over it, you start to look at all these commentaries and think, oh my gosh, there's so much in here. How am I going to say all this stuff? And basically there's some liberty and freedom being presented here to say, you don't need to. Exactly. In fact, what we need to do is make sure that we have a certain series of points which we believe God has called us to by preaching in this and to make them crystal clear. 
so that those who are hearing it can answer the question that you've put out there. What must I do to be saved? Uh, Let let me just say this, and it's from another book, but it reminds me of what you were talking about with respect to preaching generally. So in this compendium that's called Worship by the Book, there's a story in there of a Presbyterian minister, a young Presbyterian minister, who was called to a church, took over the church after the existing minister had retired. And he said when he came to this church, he was surprised because there was a little old lady that would always sit in the back. And whenever she would sense that the minister had gone on too long without speaking of Jesus and the gospel, she would just yell, get him up. (laughs) And I love that. This idea that like we should never stray too far from that central message, which is, so what must I do to be saved? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? So I I love this. Like just so much amazing practical stuff in this. I read this and thought, man, this would just be a great resource for all pastors. I think so many pastors I know do many of these things. They do them exceptionally well. But I think of like my own work, my own industry, and I'm always blessed when somebody can kind of give me something very thoughtful that tells me how I can better approach my job. And I just thought, this is that kind of resource. And yeah. it was, you know, again, penned out of this hard, amazing work, this investment of I don't know, like how many mana hours, but at least, you know, thousands of meetings to kind of sit down and try to distill what it means for preaching to be efficacious in, and, oh, I would say in any error, a, a yeah. timeless truth. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I didn't, I didn't really plan this because uh, we don't plan anything, but True. Um, this passage, you know, we, we started the show and, and in denials, we talked about Doug Wilson and no quarter November and how ridiculous it is. And and then I, my eyes land on this passage, which is on page 202. And this is in the section of kind of like the responsibilities of a preacher of the way that he must preach or minister. And point four says he must preach wisely. And it says wisdom also shows a minister how to preach boldly, but not disrespectfully or in passions or bitterness. So we see that on one hand, the Puritan preacher should not be a man pleaser. And yet in the fear of God, he must still honor all men and especially all in authority. He must preach against sin, yet avoid preaching from his own sinful anger or frustration. And I, I think that this is a word of wisdom for not just preachers, but really for all of us that kind of exist in this reformed orbit, this reformed world is so often we get passionate and we get frustrated and we get angry about people's lack of uh, discipline, their lack of, of caring about holiness, their lack of dedication to sound doctrine um, that we, we get upset about all sorts of things. And the first thing we have to remember is like, we got our own problems. So we should, we should always be aware of the fact that we're still the chief of sinners. Right. For sure. But on, on top of that, there's an appropriate way to address those issues and an appropriate way to confront those issues. And we should do so without being overly concerned about what a person's going to think of us. But at the same time, Paul also says that pastors should be of good reputation with outsiders. Otherwise they may fall into the snare of becoming a man pleaser to try to regain that uh, reputation. It's a snare of the devil. That's for elders specifically for preachers specifically, but that's something that applies to all of us, right? When I confront someone online, I need to be hyper aware of how I'm presenting myself. Uh, He says here, he says the preacher must constantly ask what will woo them? What will win them? And sometimes what's going to woo them and what's going to win them is a little bit of slap upside the head and a good dose of reality. But also sometimes it's a gentle touch and, and a, a, a quiet hand or a quiet voice that says, please consider what I have to say, brother or sister. So I, I think there's a lot here for us that we just need to, we need to digest a little bit the wisdom that's coming to us from this document. Because again, thousand sessions, right? Men who were better educated, more righteous, more sold out for Christ, more devoted, more passionate, and more knowledgeable. Uh, and I would say had a probably a greater dose of the unction of the Holy Spirit than most people that I run into will ever have, myself included. They are the ones who came with this and said, this is what our assembly has come up with of the proper way for a preacher or a Christian to approach communicating the gospel through the text. We just need to remember that. Right on. 
Quiet Hand. Another Quiet great hand. band name. Quiet Hand, yeah. That that's I, definitely a hardcore band name right there. Yeah. Quiet Hand. The Quiet Hand. Yeah. It's that's kind of like that old joke where you say, "What's the hand of what's the sound of one hand clapping?" And then they they try to do it, and then you slap them upside the head. <laughs> I've never heard that before. It's like on The Office when Dwight's like, "Knock knock, who's there?" And he's like, "The KJB," and he's like, "The KGB who?" And he slaps him in the face. And he's like, "The KGB will wait for no one." <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that's don't great. slap people. No. Right. We're not condoning that. No. Well, Jesse, we should probably wrap things up. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, we have a question cast coming up soon, don't we? Uh, we do have a, a question cast coming up. I'm I'm laughing because before we speak about question cast, I'm laughing because hopefully if you if people have listened to us for any length of time, there's a point in every episode where there's like a moment of pure tension. And in that <laughs> moment, it's as if we are teetering. There's a seesaw. And it could go into just straight craziness or it could come back and the episode could just end and you'd never know. <laughs> there was always that moment and it just happened and we just seesawed right into like oblivion and just, you know, craziness. <laughs> so Jesse, uh, why don't yes. you hit us, hit us with that phone number if people want to leave a voicemail for us. <laughs> um, so funny thing about that. I knew you were going to ask that and I don't know the phone number. <laughs> I can never remember what it is. <laughs> Oh, man. It's 607-444-2767. And it spells bros. 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 And definitely call us, leave a message, join the conversation. You can, So, again, for everybody that's listening, you can tell Tony is really good at podcasting. He was trying to throw that to me so there'd be like a little bit of like conversational flavor and feel to that in spite of ourselves we still can't do good podcasting because i just jack it all up by saying i don't actually know the number so yeah i could have just said i'm sure i could have come up with something like smoother like uh that's a great idea tony why don't you tell the number while i share the email address but <laughs> would that have been instead, smoother that doesn't seem smoother <laughs> listen my bar is really low so yes. anything would have been smoother i think than me being like I don't know the number. How about you just tell me what it is? <laughs> uh, we don't know how to land this plane, Jesse. This happens every no, week. See, where the, we're just did like, you? Did everybody? Did everybody feel it? There was that moment yeah, again. There right, it is again, right, right on there. the seesaw. So let yeah. let's bring it back in. So this was clearly the definitive podcast on chapter eleven <laughs> of Reform Peaching by Doctor Beaky. It was great. We had a great time. You all clearly had a great time. So on that note, until we question cast, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.